125 and counting. That's how many scholars have guests participated in the History Behind News program, a program that is not financially backed by any institutions, a program that does not require subscription for you to enjoy and benefit from. This is a free program, but to sustain it, we rely on your support. So please consider supporting this program on a monthly or one-time basis and for any amount you like by clicking the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. A few weeks ago, the state of Maine suffered through a horrific mass shooting in Lewiston. Then, something unexpected happened. An American politician, a gun owner, a former Marine, changed his mind on gun ownership, publicly calling for a ban on assault rifles. They did. They had a major school shooting in England, and they essentially ban handguns. <laughs> it's, so like, it's, it's like unbelievable as an American. I know, I know, I know, I you know. Yeah. It happened in New Zealand, too. Major mass shooting, ban yeah. guns. Every time there's a mass shooting, I get you know, hundreds of media requests. And I regularly talk to people from the BBC and they just cannot wrap their heads around. And so I do think like in America, we don't realize how out of the control this seems and how sort of underwhelming our response. And what is this trajectory towards violence for this person? How do you go from being a baby to being a heinous murderer? And can we really spell out exactly what that pathway looks like? Have you found anything similar in these variables between mass shooters and the people on death row? That's a good question. I haven't been asked that one before. Um, yes, certainly. In terms, I think about the early childhood trauma stuff, the kind of really horrific zero to five experiences, um, a lot of physical abuse, sexual abuse, parental suicide, pretty significant early childhood stuff. I would say that's consistent. These crimes, mass shootings are a little bit different because they're so performative. They're meant to be watched. Part of what I try to do is say this is complex. This is complicated. In our book, we lay out, I think, 35 different potential prevention intervention strategies. Oh, wow. Um, It's not about one thing. And I think when we do that, we actually end up pulling people into the conversation. We've had a really strong response to our work from across the political spectrum. If I think about this kind of trajectory towards violence on all these different pieces, I would say one is gun access. I think there is a second piece that it's about fame seeking and notoriety and wanting to be known for something. And then third, in our book, we talk about mass shootings being a form of death of despair. Did you know that after the July 2012 Aurora movie theater mass shooting, which killed 12 people, including 24-year-old Alex Teves, Tom and Karen Teves, Alex's parents, founded the No Notriety Movement, which calls on the media to refrain from gratuitously sharing the names of mass shooters or showing their images, videos, or manifestos. Why is this important? Because fame-seeking, notoriety, wanting to make the headlines and be remembered in our history books, is one of the motivating factors for the perpetrators in mass shootings. According to my guests, some perpetrators are so obsessed with this notoriety that they check their social media accounts in the middle of a mass shooting to make sure that their killing rampage is going viral. Hey there, news peelers. Today is Wednesday, December 6th, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars 
enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war, like the assault rifle used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure, which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles. These are the words of Jared Golden, the Democratic U.S. House Representative from Maine, a former Marine whose home in Lewiston is within proximity of where 18 people were shot dead and 13 wounded in late October in a bowling alley and a bar. Representative Golden also asked for forgiveness from the people of Lewiston, a district that backed Mr. Trump in his two presidential races. Representative Golden believes that it's just much simpler and cleaner to ban assault weapons than to try to ascertain on a case-by-case -case basis who should and who should not get these weapons. The Lewiston mass shooter, whose name I won't repeat here, had told family members that he was hearing voices. Also, he had briefly stayed at a mental hospital this summer. Well, there are many people out there with mental health challenges. Some may be cared for at a mental hospital, some may receive care in other settings and circumstances. Obviously, suffering from a mental health problem cannot by itself explain how an individual goes from being a harmless person to becoming homicidal and suicidal, ripping through a town on a shooting rampage and killing many innocent people. My guest, Dr. Jillian Peterson, tells us that more than 200 different variables have been identified in the lives of mass shooters to help us better understand their motivations, what triggered them to kill. In our conversation, we focus on a handful of final factors leading to the event, to the mass shooting. Factors such as gun access and fame-seeking, notoriety. We also discuss how mass shooters are different than other killers, like murderers on death row. Dr. Peterson is a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamline University, where she's the executive director of the Violence Prevention Project Research Center. She's the co-author of Violence Project, How to Stop the Mass Shooting Epidemic, a book that we discuss in this episode. As you are well familiar, our practice here at the History Behind News program is to discuss history with our guests, the background to current events, and from time to time, we enhance that conversation sort of spice it up by also mentioning our guest projects and publications. In the case of Dr. Peterson, however, her extensive and pioneering research and professional experiences are so spot on this episode's topic that instead of telling you about her research here in the intro, I'll let you hear it from her in the first segment of our conversation. To learn more about Dr. Peterson, you can visit her academic and personal homepages, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode, along with a link to her book, Violence Project, How to Stop the Mass Shooting Epidemic, as well as a link to the No Notoriety Movement, which I mentioned in the opening of this podcast. So stay with me as Dr. Peterson and I peel the history behind this news. I'm excited to share with you the news that in January 2024, we will launch Unraveling the Middle East. It's a whole new weekly podcast, a series on the Middle East, its in-depth history and analysis. In our inaugural episode, a renowned economic historian answers these questions. How did the Middle East fall behind Europe? Why was it that Europe explored and conquered the world rather than the mighty empires of the Middle East? Having fallen behind, why did the Middle East stay behind? By the way, we also discuss what it means to fall behind. I've dropped a link to Unraveling the Middle East in the detailed caption of this episode, so you can follow this new program on your favorite podcast platform and to be one of the first in our growing audience to listen to our inaugural episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Peterson about the lives of mass shooters. Dr. Peterson, it's a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Um, let's talk about your research as a special investigator in New York City. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so I was in New York City. Um, I was young, about 
23, 24, 25, working for the New York Capital Defender's Office, which was the public defender's office that only does death penalty cases in New York City. So all of our clients were facing the death penalty and New York actually didn't use the death penalty a whole lot. So the when they did use it, they were pretty sort of serious headline type murders. And it was my job to go to Rikers Island and meet our clients who were facing the death penalty and put together what we called biopsychosocial developmental life histories. So Wait, say that again, biopsycho. Say that again, so please. Biopsychosocial developmental life histories. Wow. Okay. So, and those were used to make the argument that the perpetrator should get life without parole instead of the death penalty. And so it was a lot of talking to these murderers, um, spending hours with them on Rikers Island, meeting their families, their, you know, kindergarten teachers, their old neighbors, anybody we could find who would talk to us, gathering records about their life and trying to really chart out kind of what is this trajectory towards violence for this person? How do you go from being a baby to being a heinous murderer? And can we really spell out exactly what that pathway looks like? You spend hours with these murderers. What is that like? Like, um, I mean, that's not, that's not a normal thing for an ordinary American, right? No. Um, you know, it was unremarkable in some ways. I think I went in thinking I'm going to go meet these heinous murderers, these actors, you know, it's going to be terrifying. And it wasn't, um, these, you had to remind yourself that this person had committed a heinous murder. Um, they were you had to remind yourself somehow in the conversation with them they came out normal is that what you mean yeah i mean they certainly weren't they had really you every time you could see this life history leading up to this right a lot of them had serious mental health histories really significant trauma histories you know kind of horrific lives leading up to this point um but you still saw the good in them. They still could make jokes. They still, you know, it still felt like you were talking to a human being. And in many cases, I don't know, that's the thing that gave me the most hope in general, that these are the people who have done the worst of the worst things, right? The headlines that you read and you just cringe and I can sit down and talk to them and they're a human being. Um, and so how this sounds we- remarkable to me. I mean, this <laughs> is not, uh, it's unremarkable. This sounds remarkable. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, it was amazing work. I think it set the trajectory for the rest of my entire academic career. Certainly I still go back to sort of those years I spent just talking to these men on Rikers Island. Um, so I did that for about three years until New York got rid of the death penalty and so our office was shut down and I decided I did not want to work with people facing the death penalty anymore. <laughs> I wanted to actually try to prevent those crimes from occurring in the first place. Before we move on to your next uh, research, mm-hmm. that's really fascinating. And I want to talk about it. before we go on, I had a question queued up to ask you about your work for New York City. And I think you kind of answered it. You, you used the phrase every time and then followed that with a couple of explanations horrific lives. It seems like you did find, I was going to ask, did you find a common theme? And it seems like you did. We did. So we had this saying in that office, which was the worst, the crime, the worst, the story, right? So if it, and it was always true, you were always uncovering, like people don't just do horrific things out of absolutely nowhere. Um, There is a path that gets them there. And it often involves their own kind of early childhood violence and victimization, which is not an excuse, right? And it doesn't mean you're not responsible. It's just how do we understand what that pathway looks like? Because you're not born into the world, this little evil baby ready to commit murder, right? It's yeah. has developed over time and you could see exactly how it was developed. You could also go back and see all these places that it could have gone differently, right? Like if only their sixth grade teacher had noticed this, or if only somebody had intervened at 14, or if only this, you could see 
where the story had turned out differently. It's like when it when it got to the point of committing that murder, there was just so many failures along that pathway that you could see that prevention was absolutely possible. Are you putting this together as a composite of the the death row inmate story with everyone else's added together? Because that that specific story could be colored, right? Right. Yes. I worked probably had my hands in maybe 20 to 25 cases. So I was working with a lot of different, um, all men. I never worked with a woman um, at various stages. Some were on death row. Most of them were awaiting sentencing at Rikers. Um, so this was no, this was not a formal study, right? At that point, I yeah. got to graduate school. I didn't yeah. know any of the terminology to really study <laughs> this. This was just my own experience doing this work. Oh, wow. So let's talk about uh, your next research. Now you're working, um, uh, um, you receive a three-year grant and we're a principal investigator for the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice. Tell us about that, please. Yes, that project started with me and um, my co-author, James Densley, and a group of kind of passionate undergraduate students sitting around a conference table thinking about mass shootings. And it it was, we were having a lot of mass shootings. It was right around um, the Las Vegas mass shooting. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was all this conversation about, you know, mental illness and mass shootings, which had, mental illness and violence had been a focus of mine through graduate school. And so I started Googling just, you know, what percentage of mass shooters had a diagnosable mental illness or what percent of them had experienced this. And it was clear that this was a group of people that we did not understand. There was just no actual data. We could find kind of counts of how often they were happening, but I couldn't find any information about who these perpetrators were and what their lives were like leading up to the shooting. Um, so we decided we were going to try to look into it. You mean you 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 couldn't find the information in one place because I'm sure each court case has separate information, right? Exactly. I couldn't okay. find right a collection of that information that you could actually draw conclusions about patterns and things. It was mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. kind of case studies. Yeah, yeah. So we basically decided to pull all those case studies together into one place, right? So we made a spreadsheet um, every perpetrator who had killed four or more people going back about 50 years, we initially started by coding them on maybe 40 or 50 different variables. Um, and then we got the grant from the National Institute of Justice. Once we got that, we really expanded the database. So it's now up to about 200 different variables that each perpetrator is coded on. And it's about 200 perpetrators. So anything, you know, from early childhood trauma, violent video games, mental health treatment, uh, warning signs, leakage, how they got their guns, we just, and as we were coding, we would end up adding more variables. Um, and we initially released that database, uh, what, maybe three years ago? And it keeps, it's kind of this living, breathing document. So we're now in its eighth iteration because people download it, they use it, and then they come back and they suggest to us variables that we're missing or, you know, an FBI report comes out and we can go back and sort of code um, some perpetrator with more detail. So it's, we're sort of constantly changing it. The other thing that the NIJ grant let us do was interviews. So we sent a letter to every living perpetrator of um, a mass shooting that we could find. Most of them die when they do the shooting so that we could only find yeah. about 35 of them. Um, seven of them wrote back and said they would agree to be interviewed about their life history. So we interviewed perpetrators. We also interviewed moms and dads of perpetrators, siblings, kind of childhood teachers, basically very similar to the investigative work I did back yeah. for New York, but we decided to do it just looking at mass shooters in a more academic capacity. Uh, first, a point of clarification for me. You were talking about variables and you used the word leakage. I, I don't know what that word means in the context of your work. Good question. Yes. So leakage means anytime somebody says they're going to do a mass shooting or some sort of violence before they do it. They leak their plans. I got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so 
Have you found anything similar in these variables between mass shooters and the people on death row back in New York City, New York State? That's a good question. I haven't been asked that one before. Um, yes, certainly. In terms, I think about the early childhood trauma stuff, the kind of really horrific zero to five experiences, um, a lot of physical abuse, sexual abuse, parental suicide, pretty significant early childhood stuff. I would say that's consistent. Um, these crimes, mass shootings are a little bit different because they're so performative. They're meant to be watched. They're meant to be witnessed. They're a way to kind of get your message out to the world. A lot of the crimes that I worked with back in New York were more impulsive, less planned out. These are very planned. Um, these are also suicides. Mass shootings are suicides in addition to being homicides. And so that also gives them kind of a slightly, I don't know, different trajectory. So I would say there was some similarities, but really mass shooters were very similar to each other and kind of different than other murderers and criminals that I had worked with and studied previously. It seems like they almost didn't care if they got away with it. Well, actually, they go in intending to die or yeah. to be, they have to because the part of the goal is they want their name in the history books for this. They want their message out. So nobody does it and throws on a disguise and races for the border, right? They go in knowing I want to be known for this. Wow. Um, so after having done this, and we're going to talk about this a lot more, but I'm just wondering at this point is... Have you been able to pinpoint through this first 40 variables, then 50, now it's gone all the way to 200 variables. Have you been able to pick several value variables or a point to say, aha, this is what triggers a person to become from being super angry to become a mass shooter? Is there something there? I mean, yes and no. So a lot of those variables were kind of ruling out explanations, right? So we went... For a while, it was all about violent video games. We went and coded how many perpetrators play violent video games. It's not that many, right? It, for a while, last <laughs> summer, it was SSRI. Thank God. Thank God I'm normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last summer, it was SSRI medication specifically was in the news. We went and coded how many perpetrators took SSRI medication. It's similar to the normal population. It's, you don't see a lot of it. And so a lot of it was just kind of ruling out these explanations that we would come up every time there was one case. Um, so I would say I can't give you sort of a checklist of here's the checklist that makes you a mass shooter, but we did find what we call kind of a common pathway to violence that perpetrators went down. Um, and that was kind of starting with early childhood trauma, developing into a really clear crisis point where people were noticing that something was wrong, their behavior was off. That was something kind of tipped the scale. It was a job loss or a breakup. Dr. Peterson, when you say people noticing, yeah, is this more than just mom and dad? Does this yeah. include like teachers, the immediate community? Yep. Teachers, coworkers, okay. friends, random people online are noticed. Like there's a market change in their behavior. Okay. Um that crisis is suicidal. So they often, they don't care if they live or die anymore. They start studying other perpetrators. Uh, many of them spend time in online chat groups. Many of them identify with the previous perpetrators who came before them, kind of see themselves in them and want to be a part of that group in some way. Of all the heroes they can pick? I know. I know. But there is that element of it. Wow. They, one sister of a perpetrator described it really eloquently, where she said it, the, her, her brother went from saying, you know, what's wrong with me to saying, what's wrong with everybody else and whose fault is it? Right. It's like, it's the initial piece of it is this oh. thing, but then it becomes this has to be someone's fault. So whose fault is it? And so school shooters blame the kids at their school. Workplace shooters blame their colleagues. Some people blame, you know, racial groups or women or religious groups. They pick a group that kind of represents their grievance with the world. Um, and then the shooting is a way to make everybody see and witness that grievance. It's a way to be seen and known in a way that they aren't in their life. And of course, they also have access to the weapons that they need to carry it out. 
That's um, an important point that we're going to talk about. I'm really fascinated with that. And I'm wondering, is your research with your students at Hamline University, where you're executive director of the Violence Prevention Project Research, mm-hmm. is that data adding on, enhancing this? Yes. Okay. Um, yes. So currently, yeah, the the database is housed there. Um, it's free to download. It's fully available to the public. Um, it's been downloaded thousands of times by researchers and policymakers. And Wait, is this the same data from what you were describing from DOJ or is this a separate research with your students? And- same data. Okay. Um, so just kind of still growing and expanding it um, on the life histories of mass shooters. Is it being expanded by, unfortunately, new mass shooting events, or are they also bringing new variables? You said it went from 40 to 50 to 200, and now you go back and add those variables to prior mass shooting events. Is that also happening? Yes, exactly. So we're still adding new variables. I thought at some point we would hit a maximum, but (laughs) we are still adding new variables. We are still going back and updating information from old shootings and a Unfortunately, we're still um, fairly regularly having to add new cases to the data, which is important because we can look and see kind of over time, you know, in the past five years, has anything changed? Um, And so we do keep it updated in that way to look for trends. And I'm going to ask this question. It probably comes from the fact that I watch too much CNBC. Um, do you do sort of an AI analysis of all this data? Like, is or is that not relevant to this? To see if we there's a trend? We don't. We haven't. We're just doing, you know, old school statistics. Um. <laughs> Which is fine. No, I was just wondering because you hear that in business news all yeah. the time. AI this, AI that. Okay. Um, one of the things that I noticed uh, in preparing for my conversation with you is – some of this research that you're conducting, Dr. Peterson, goes back to 1966. Why then? We picked 1966 because that is the year of the Texas Bell Tower shooting. Um, It was at the University of Texas. It was kind of known as the first modern day mass shooting because it ended up being live streamed on television at the time. And so it's kind of pointed to as kind of the one where the mass shooting was born. They existed before then, but not in the public eye in the same way. I see. I see. Um, Before we go to the next segment, I just have a quick question, a bit personal, but I think our audience and I are both dying to know. Going back to New York City, you know, you leave a prison or you leave speaking to a person on death row or even mass shooters later. Um, what do you talk about at night when you're getting together with your friends? <laughs> I think that's, I think that's, it's not just about you. Yeah. That's a real important question about yeah. our society. I used to be a patent lawyer. So at night I would talk about patent cases and my friends would say, Adele, for crying out loud, that is so boring. Stop. Right. And then my friend who was a DA, she had stories and her stories were always, interesting to listen to. Yes. So, th- did this sort of pervade through your personality for some time? Um, back in New York, it did. I think it was so all-encompassing. Yeah. I, you know, 100 hours a week. I was fascinated. It was um, – so certainly I was pretty immersed in it. I'm sure my friends were bored of my stories. <laughs> I um, doubt it. <laughs> now it's different. You know, now I have three kids who I cannot talk about mass shootings at the dinner table every night. Um, so there's a little bit more, I would say, of a healthy separation in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it didn't, did it, did it get you depressed? You know, it didn't. Um, I think, I don't know. There's something about being exposed to really the darkest side of humanity. And realizing it's not as dark as you thought it was, that's actually kind of the opposite. You know, it's just, they're still human people. They're still good in them. I think the hardest interviews for me is when we were interviewing victims, specifically parents who had lost children. Those are really overwhelming interviews to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. those Those I feel like I could feel really heavy for a while. But in general, talking to perpetrators did not make me depressed. It actually made me hopeful. I actually feel like I wish more people 
could see the human side of sort of this darkness because it it's less scary. And and what went wrong? Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, I asked that question because I see that let's just let's not talk about other countries. We Americans sort of hurl ourselves from one mass shooting to another and we forget. So the fact that you were so proximate to it for at least three years that I know, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about other research about mass shooters. The Second Amendment says this, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But according to Dr. Robert Spitzer, my guest in Season 3, Episode 15, that's not the right way to read this amendment. He explains how legal scholars slowly began to reinterpret the Second Amendment, or perhaps to interpret it more broadly, starting in the 1960s. And he also tells us the story of how the NRA used to work with Congress to regulate, to regulate guns. I know, that shocked me too. Dr. Spitzer has testified before the U.S. Congress, participated in meetings at the White House, and his work has been cited by federal courts. He is the author of The Gun Dilemma, a 2023 book that we discuss in our conversation, for which I've dropped a link for you. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Peterson about the psychology of mass shooters. Dr. Peterson, is looking into the lives of mass shooters a prolific research area? Um, yes, I think it is. I it think, is, okay. Well, I think, and I'm not sure, it depends on your definition, I guess. But I think for me, the whole goal of this project was always about preventing more violence. And so I think you don't, you can't, do prevention if you don't have a very deep understanding of the problem. Yep. And we didn't, we had a really simple, like inadequate understanding of the problem. And so our prevention strategies were not working. Our prevention strategies were armed guards and run, hide, fight drills and bulletproof backpacks and things that um, aren't true prevention, right? It's just all about minimizing casualties. And so I guess doing this work it felt important and it felt like people really needed to know um, and wanted to listen to it. So I'm not sure it's not sort of your traditional academic motivation where I'm pumping out papers, right? And at, we actually released the database publicly before we published a single paper, um, which other academics, like, what are you doing? Right? <laughs> you got to publish. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you did yeah. because the data is so important and you can see how the world, academia at the very at least, responded to it. They increase your variables. Right. right there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so who funds this sort of research? Is it the NIH, the CDC, private funding? Mm -hmm. So the original funding came from the National Institute of Justice. We have grants right now. How is that uh, uh, institute funded? Ba private funding for that institute? No, that's the Department of Justice. Okay. So federal funds. Yeah. Um, we have some private foundation funding, places like the Joyce Foundation for some research projects. We actually just got a really large grant from the Minnesota legislature to do gun violence prevention research. And then we oh, actually wow. get just a lot of individual donors, people who just, we are set up as a nonprofit research center. So we have a lot of people who just- God bless them. I know. Does your funding- fluctuate based on politics of the time? Let's say Republicans uh, win elections, uh, Democrats, or whatever. Yes. Um, a lot of people are surprised to find out that when we received this funding, it was during the Trump presidency to actually study Oh, that. wow. I'm surprised. Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who knew? Who knew? And so there has been an increase just generally in gun violence research funding, yeah. I would say the last five years or so, we're finally starting to see the That's funding. great. Yeah. Um, here's a question that I wonder about whenever there is a mass shooting, which unfortunately is too often. Have experts conducted research to compare the actions of unstable individuals without guns versus those with guns? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky question. So the biggest problem with my research is that I don't have a control group. Right, I don't have a matched <laughs> design. Yeah, yeah. Right. Here's a placebo. Here's yeah. Yes, here's these two people, the same on all these variables. This one did a mass shooting. This one didn't. What's the real difference? You know, it's just too complex of a problem to do that. And so, what we do know is there are individuals, even in our own database, who are on the radar, who are thinking about doing this, who couldn't access guns. And then they are able to access guns, right? And then that's so we just had, I think, a mass shooting. Wait, go back again. So this is the same individual. So the you're kind of doing it retrospectively on this exactly. individual. You know, a point where he or she could not, well, you said you work with men uh, yeah. mostly, he yeah. could not access guns. So he didn't become a mass shooter. But later, when he is, you found this yeah. out through your interviews, right? Right. Later when they're able to get access. Yeah. So one thing we did a really deep dive on is actually gun access. We built a whole gun database separately from the mass shooter database. So it has every gun used in every mass shooting, um, how it was obtained, when it was obtained, you know, if it was legal, illegal, if they took it, what type of gun it was, if it was modified, because we really wanted to do a deep dive into that just to provide data to the gun conversation, because there's just a lack of data there. Um, and we did find there'd be perpetrators who had been trying to get access for a long time, and then they finally turned 18, or then they finally drove to a different state, or then they finally... And so we were really interested on how sort of gun access interacts with somebody who's on the edge and thinking about doing Yeah, it. I'm interested. Do you remember several years ago, gosh, maybe six, seven years ago, in China, there was an incident in which a man with a knife entered a bus or something like that and stabbed a bunch of people. I don't know how many people died, but sort of someone who had essentially lost their faculty and, and, and faculties and mass murder, not a mass shooter. Yep. We don't we don't have too many incidents like this, not just in our country and just generally in the world, someone like with a knife or get their car and run over someone it's mostly with the guns right i'm not advocating i'm literally just interested to know yeah it is mostly with guns there's some researchers who track um for example um jamie fox he tracks every time four or more people are killed in any scenario so includes knives and includes arson and includes bombs we just did mass shootings okay. um that which is accounts for the vast vast majority um, we do not have a lot, of, especially if you're looking at cases where four or more people died, it's really hard to kill four or more people with a knife. Um, before yeah. You're <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, also what, some of the things that you were talking about, uh, arson or bombing, their, their characteristic of the perpetrators may be different than what you're saying. They don't have that suicidal uh, path before them. Um, is there any research into, uh, geographic areas, jurisdictions that are super strict on guns versus those that are lax on guns? Is there comparative studies on those? Yes. The problem is there's so many other differences between those <laughs> geographic areas that it's hard to say for sure the gun law, right? Like there's just so many differences. And I should say... Uh. Um, one thing that I didn't start out with is our definition. So this whole conversation really depends on what definition you use of a mass shooting. So there are some people use a definition where four or more people are shot in any context, not killed, but just shot in any context. So that could be a party, that could be a drive-by shooting, that could be a domestic. We used a really narrow and conservative definition, four or more people killed in a public location not related to any other felony, so not a robbery gone bad, not a drug deal gone bad, not family, really isolating, like entering a public space as a stranger and killing indiscriminately. And we chose that not because we think those are most important types of issues, but that was the piece that was not understood. Um, yeah. Compared to, you know, we have more research about gang violence and domestic violence. We really didn't understand this. So that's why we isolated that. But you can get counters who will say there's 500 mass shootings a year, and some people will say there's seven mass shootings a year. Oh, wow. Depending on how you um, define it. And so that's where you see geographical differences, right? Because if you look at 
four or more people shot in any context. It's a lot more like big urban cities. If you take our definition, you see a lot more rural and suburban um, shootings, a lot more south. You see a lot California. So it's just important to be super clear about definitions is what I've found. So which then undermines any sort of geographic context uh, to that question that, you know, you could do comparative study. And um, mass shooting, I think the mass shooting that is really frightening everyone is the kind that you were talking about, sort of random. People know gang violence. People know, unfortunately, domestic violence and what have you. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about where we are now, our current crisis of frequent mass shootings. We'll be back. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Peterson, from the perspective of your expertise, why have mass shootings increased? And there's a number of ways to answer that question. So if I think about this kind of trajectory towards violence on all these different pieces, I would say one is gun access. Um, it has just become easier to get your hands on guns, especially things like AR-15s and assault-style weapons, which are the most popular guns used these days. I think there is a second piece that it's about fame-seeking and notoriety and wanting to be known for something, um, kind of wanting to make the headlines and wanting to make the history books. And then third, in our book, we talk about mass shootings being a form of death of despair. So we've seen this rise in death of despair, um, that suicides, drug overdoses, um, you know, alcohol related. We kind of put this in that category because it is a form of suicide, because it is people who are totally hopeless, decide they don't care if they live or die. And you can really map the rise of mass shootings onto this similar rise that we've seen in other forms of death of despair in this country. And if we want to talk about the roots of that, I mean, we could go into our social safety net and mental health and stress and all sorts of things. But um, yeah, I would say I don't have a good one word answer for that. I think it's all of that. First, you mentioned, you said in our book, what book are you talking about? Yes. So we published all of this data and really focused on the interviews with perpetrators in a book called The Violence Project, How to Stop the Mass Shooting Epidemic, which came out in 2021. Wonderful. And that's available, let's say, on Amazon and all of that, right? Yes, available anywhere. Yeah. I'll drop a link for it at, in the detailed caption of our conversation. Um, fame seeking. Mm -hmm. This this just boggles the mind. Um, I don't know. Do you think this has to do with social media? Social media really took off as of 2010. That's really, but mass shooting. I guess also really became big after 2010. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had it before, but. Yeah. I think of Matt, of social media is kind of an accelerant, right? So not necessarily causal, um, but accelerating a access to other people who think like this. You know, it used to be you were really interested in Columbine and thinking about mass shootings, the chances that you would run into another person who thought that way were fairly slim. But online, <laughs> Thank God for that. Thought, right. right. Yeah. But now with the whole world at your fingertips, you can really find some really dark spaces that validate violence, that celebrate perpetrators, that you can feel like you're a part of this community of people who think this way. Um, I think also just in terms of how much attention mass shootings get and how they kind of go viral, um, you know, social media is a key piece of that. There's perpetrators yeah. who check their Facebook page in the middle of doing a mass shooting to make sure that they're going viral. Oh my God, that is so warped. It's so warped. I know. We actually spent um, a day with a couple named Karen and Tom Teeves. Um, they 
started a movement called the No Notoriety Movement. So they lost their son in the Aurora, Colorado, shooting at the movie theater. He was there with his fiance. Oh. He ended up, he actually jumped on top of her. She ended up living. He died. Oh. Oh. I know. Awful. They were so appalled by how much attention that specific perpetrator was getting on CNN and his face was everywhere and everywhere they looked, it was just the perpetrator's face that they- Did did the perpetrator live? Yes. Okay. He did. Um, And he had a whole trial and um, so it got even more attention, right? And so they started this no notoriety movement which is like, don't name the perpetrators, don't show their images, um, don't share their manifestos, you know, share, you can do the basics, you want to cover the story, not totally ignore it, but don't give perpetrators that kind of fame that they're looking for. And so part of my practice is I don't name perpetrators and that entire book we wrote, we didn't name a single perpetrator. Um, and we kind of committed to being part of that movement with them. You can talk about this without having to give people celebrity status. I undermine one of the main purposes of doing this, let them just fade into sort of oblivion of history. Um, have we had a long history of teenage mass shooters, or is that also a new thing? They're getting younger. Um, they're getting younger and younger. So school mass shooters specifically have always been young. School mass shooters tend to be students of the school. So they tend to be 15, 16. They've gone down to 11. Um, But typically 15, 16-year-old students who attend that school. Um, We have had a number of public mass shooters in the last five years who have been 18, 19, 20 years old. We did see a drop post-COVID, a drop in the age um, of mass shooters in general. They tend to typically cluster in kind of early 20s and early 40s. Those are the two clusters we tend to see, but now we're seeing this younger perpetrators emerge. When we're talking about some of the factors you enumerated, uh, easier access, gun access, fame seeking, and also uh, sort of this, I don't know, this fascination, I guess, with uh, death or being depressed, sort of being suicidal. Is there any correlation between the opioid crisis and this third factor? Yeah, I think there is, um, somewhat. Um, I do think this kind of overwhelming feeling of despair, of hopelessness, of not really caring about the future, feeling disconnected, feeling isolated. I think there's a lot of sort of practices that can connect with that. So um, did, did do you have any data that shows how many of these mass shooters took opioids? We do have that coded. It's not very many. It's not very many. Okay. No. Um, in psychology and, or, you know, criminal psychology, are there any procedures or tests to assess an individual's um, potential or I guess propensity for becoming a mass shooter. I'm not even sure if this would be legal, but <laughs> I, I, I'm curious. You know, you can't go with someone and yeah. test it for this. Yeah, no. I mean, there's people who have made checklists out there. I don't think they're like valid or reliable. I'm not even sure we would be able to check validity, right? You'd have to actually have somebody become a mass shooter and yeah. well, they compared on your checklist. Yeah. This is the problem with this. It's like, how do you show you stopped an event, right? Um But so I would say, no, we'll probably never have a test exactly for a mass shooter. But what we do know is perpetrators tell people they're going to do it ahead of time, especially K through 12 school shooters. It's like 94% tell somebody that. Which goes to that leakage factor variable that you talked about in segment one. Okay. So leakage is a huge red flag. Leakage combined with suicidality combined with gun access. I think those to me would be what I'm looking for, right? It's somebody in crisis, suicidal, talking about committing violence who has access to guns. That would be my kind of short um, yeah. risk assessment, right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of off topic, but as, as let's say a principal of a high school or a teacher, this just puts so much pressure on people all of a sudden when they see some of these signs. Um Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Peterson as we get into the perspective. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? 
That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Peterson, how does this adage, which is relatively recent, that guns don't kill people, people do, fit into our discussion? I think... I feel like we've tried to boil this down into either guns are the problem or people are the problem. And it's both, right? It is both. Most people who own a gun do not commit a mass shooting. Um, However, right, the ones that do have access (laughs) to guns. You can't do a mass shooting without a gun. So I think it's both of them. It is easy access to the guns that you need to do this. And it's people so hopeless in crisis, suicidal, that'd be nice if we could do intervention and prevent them from getting to that point where they would do this with a gun, right? And so I think it's it's a problem sort of across both sides of the aisle, no matter what, that we are trying to boil this down to one single thing. Part of what I try to do is say, this is complex. This is complicated. In our book, we lay out, I think, 35 different potential prevention intervention strategies. Oh, wow. Um, It's not about one thing. And I think when we do that, we actually end up pulling people into the conversation. We've had a really strong response to our work from across the political spectrum. Actually, I think because we're willing to say this was complicated, we know our work was kind of central to the bipartisan gun legislation that was finally passed at the federal level a year ago. Um, because it's saying it's not just this, it's not just this, it's the mixture of these two things. How do we have a real conversation about this using data? Um, so I think, yeah, the more we can embrace the complexity and be open to it, the better. You're asking too much of Americans. <laughs> it's not headline news. It takes more than 20 yeah. seconds. Uh, yeah. Speaking of conversations, this, this, this summer we were vacationing in England and over a couple of drinks, we were having a conversation with, with, with a British couple. I, I don't know in what context it came up that in Britain, some time ago, a decade ago or so, uh, I, I don't recall, they had cleaned up guns. Yep. Um, and as you were, talking with me here about um, the complexity of this. Uh, I'm wondering, have you guys done any work with European scholars? So the co-author of my book and my research partner is actually British. Um, oh, interesting. So he has okay. a really different perspective. Um, <laughs> so they did. They had a major school shooting in England, and they essentially banned handguns. <laughs> it's so like, <laughs> It's it's like unbelievable as an American. I know, I know, I know. You know, yeah. It happened in New Zealand too. Major mass shooting, bad guns, right? And so, I think in some ways he just can't fathom what we're doing in America. You know, I have every time there's a mass shooting, I get you know hundreds of media requests, and I regularly talk to people from the BBC, and they just cannot wrap their heads around it. You know, I was explaining that kids. My kids in you know Minnesota, you're required to do five lockdown drills a year where you practice for a shooting at your school. And they what, thought- What is I, the age group of your kids? So my kids are first through sixth grade. And they have uh, to do lockdown exercises. So here, oh. yes, age four, through, <laughs> age four through grade 12, you're required to do five a year. Most states, some states require 10 drills a year where you're practicing- So these are not fire drills. These are yes. mass shooting drills, gun, gun violence. being shot in your classroom and what oh. you do. They couldn't fathom that that was our approach to solving this, right? Let's just drill kids to respond. Um and so I do think like in America, we don't realize how out of the control this seems and how sort of underwhelming our response. Um, okay. I'm going to go off topic. Well, not off topic, off script a little bit. <laughs> and, and you're the expert. I'm not. You know, I've spent time in Europe. They're not more sane than we are and they're not 
you know, more insane than we are. <laughs> I mean, the thing that's different here, the thing that's not like the others is the gun, right? Yep. Yep. So we wrote the second chapter of our book is called America. Um, okay. And so, yes, access to guns is huge. That's a really big piece. The other two things that we talked about is a the kind of fame notoriety seeking piece is very American. Um, oh, that's not a factor in Europe. Um, I think that sort of individualism, fame at any cost uh, mm -hmm. approach is a bit American, and then the lack of social safety net, right? Like the no healthcare and no mental health services and no anything, you know, like that sort of social yeah. safety. Net. Piece, I would say is another factor, but certainly the gun access is nightmare. It's a big thing. So I've been speaking with you for some 40 plus minutes and I'm walking away somewhat convinced that guns are an issue. So let's say you speak with someone from the NRA or someone that's totally pro gun. How does that conversation go? Have yeah. you, have you had that sort of, okay. Yeah, I do speak to a lot of gun owners. Um, and I think gun owners, non-gun owners, nobody wants children murdered in school, right? That yeah. We all can agree on that. That is a universal. Of course. Um, so that's always where I start. Right? Um, and I think we can mostly agree that we do not want someone who is a danger to self or others and telling other people that he's a danger to himself or others yeah. to have access to a gun, right? That's yeah. We can pretty much all say like, yes, if you're going around saying, I want to commit murder, you probably shouldn't be able to have a gun. Yeah, and so yeah. there are things, there are really like things like extreme risk for protection orders or red flag laws, anything we can do to slow down purchasing. So if you are in an active suicidal or homicidal crisis and you go to buy a gun, don't get it handed to you that day, right? Have to fill out a permit, have a waiting period, have some screening, right? Like anything we can do to slow down access. Is there pushback on that? I mean, that sounds so intuitive, right? You know, Logical. I think, yes. Whenever I actually have like one-on-one -on -one real conversations, no, I think a lot of people, I think this gets lost in the bigger policy level conversations, but I think most Americans, same thing with safe storage, right? So perpetrators of school shootings, they all take their guns from their parents because they can't buy them. And so they're all just guns that are not secured. So most Americans, gun owners, non-gun owners agree, people should lock up their guns, right? Like it's from their children. And so there's really simple things that I think is low hanging fruit that we can actually come together on. And that's where we have to sort of start. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about the psychology of mass shooters after everything we've talked about, what would that be? Um, two things I would say. I would say, A, they're suicides in addition to being homicides, because I think that really changes your perspective about is a good guy with a gun going to stop it? No, because they plan to die anyways, right? So yeah. I think that they're suicides. Um. And also that they're insiders, which is maybe not something we talked about that much, but these are not scary. No, we didn't. Yeah. These are not scary outside monsters you've never met before. These are students at the school you go to. These are people who work at the place that they shoot up. For the most part, these are people that we see every day. Um, and that makes prevention actually a lot more possible because you're able to notice changes in behaviors and warning signs. That's actually a very good point. Seeing a colleague or a kid in, you know, in your block mm -hmm. and you see their behavior changes, mm -hmm. but it's also as a whole new layer of sort of fright into this yeah. uh, conversation. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. 
otherwise we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>